Thank you, Brian. It's a pretty, pretty song there. Got to take my phone out. All right, if you'll turn to Second Thessalonians. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 12, so kind of in the middle of that chunk I read at the beginning of the sermon, or the beginning of the service. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Second Thessalonians 2, 5 through 12. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So periodically I like to remind us why we do what we call expository preaching, which is really just taking a text and explaining or exposing the text, especially focused on the main point of the text. What is the author trying to communicate to his audience? What is his main thrust? What is the point? And this is important because we believe, and, and I think the scripture bears this out, that the word is to be central to the Christian life. It's really Christ who is central to the Christian life, but we understand Jesus Christ through his word. And so not only is, is the word the foundation of the Christian life, because it, it gives us Jesus uh, as, as the, the author and perfecter of our faith, but also the word of God, the Bible, should be central in the life of the church. So we do expository preaching so that the, 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 the word is revealed and, 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 and it's it, it, um, unleashed, as it were, uh, for the Spirit to apply it to our hearts. So what that means is we go through books of the Bible. We've gone through uh, recently First Thessalonians, and now we're going through Second Thessalonians, seeking, as I said, to find the main point of the passage. Now, one reason I bring that up in this case is that when we come to verses 6 and 7, and we, we hear about this restrainer, who is this restrainer? Now, I must admit that in preparing for this sermon, I went down a rabbit hole, right? And I could have done a whole sermon series on who the restrainer is. And I was rolling around in there and trying to figure out and looking here, looking there, looking there. And then I, was, I kind of stopped and was like, wait a minute. What's the main point of the passage? So let me encourage you, as you're studying the scriptures, that, that kind of helps you keep from getting bogged down into some of the details. And you say, well, Josh, it's in the word of God. It's not, it's not extra. It's not superfluous. It's not unnecessary, well, that's true, so we do, we do want to look at it, but we want to make sure that we're not so focused on who the restrainer is that we miss the main point of the passage. And one reason you know that it's not the, that this restrainer is not the main point of the passage is, you see in verse 5 that Paul says, do you remember that I, when I was with you, I was telling you these things? And then verse 6, and you know what restrains him now. So Paul is saying, I've talked to you about this restrainer moving on. So we don't get who the restrainer is. 
because Paul had discussed it with the Thessalonians, and he's saying, you remember so what I talked about? Okay, well, he's going to restrain him for a while, now moving on. So we know from this that we're not meant to just camp out and, and really and, and, uh, slave away at figuring out who the restrainer is. That we're not meant to know, otherwise it would be here in the text. So we have less information in that sense than the Thessalonians. But we don't ignore it altogether, so when we come to that, we will discuss it. But what's the main point of the passage? Well, we've seen from verse 1 of this chapter 2 that Paul's concern is that the Thessalonian believers are shaken and disturbed by these reports that the day of the Lord is upon them. It's here, in essence. And we saw that Paul's method of keeping them composed and not disturbed, and verse 3, not deceived, was to remind them of the order of events which must proceed or precede the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the, of the Lord will not come, it, the day of the Lord will not come, unless the apostasy comes first, we talked about that, the falling away, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So, you know that the day of the Lord is not here because these things have not happened, Paul says. You'll know that it is coming when you, these things happen. He then goes on to describe the man of lawlessness, and I think it's so that they will be able to recognize him. In verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he even takes his place in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Then in verse 9, he continues on a, a description of this man of lawlessness. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And so in this section, what we're looking at, verses 5 through 12, Paul answers three more questions that likely would have come up in their minds as they read this, especially about this man of lawlessness. Questions that could enter our minds as we're reading this passage. The first is, when will he come? He says, the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness comes first. So a natural question, well, when is the man of lawlessness coming? Paul says something about that. Then he says, what, he answers it's the question of what will his coming be like? What will accompany it? We saw this partly last week. The, he, he opposes himself he, uh, against all gods. He takes his seat in the temple. He comes in the power of Satan with false signs and wonders. But he goes on to say that these other things will accompany his, his coming, and we're going to talk about those today. Then number three, the third question, what will be his end? What will be the end of the Antichrist? We see that especially there in verse 8. The Lord himself will come and with the breath of his mouth slay the Antichrist. So it seems that Paul, as he's talking about, he's trying, not to, uh, he's trying to help them not to be quickly shaken or disturbed. He goes on to say, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Now let me tell you about him. Now let me tell you what his coming will be like. And now let me tell you about how he will end. So we're going to answer those three questions, hopefully, as we examine this passage so first, Paul addresses the timing of the man of lawlessness's appearance. When will he come? As I mentioned there in verse 5, Paul says that I've told, I talked to you about these things when I was with you. So we don't have a, 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 what he told them. He's not telling them again. We don't have the full teaching. Uh, so we don't know as clear on that. But we do have uh, this restrainer. We have this restrainer mentioned in verses 6 and 7. And so because of verse 5, again, we don't know who this restrainer is. Paul's saying, I told you about the restrainer. Now let me remind you that he's being restrained, this man of lawlessness. And then when the restrainer is taken out of the way, he will appear. 
Interestingly, this restrainer restrains him in verse 7, sorry, in verse 6, until his time, that is, the man of lawlessness' time, until the time of the Antichrist, meaning that is his God-ordained time of activity on the earth, that he is being restrained, that restrainer will be taken out of the way, and then his God-ordained or God-allowed time on the earth will take place. That's all we have as far as when he is coming, just that he is being restrained, and then the restrainer is taken out of the way, he will come. Except that we see there in verse 7 that this mystery of lawlessness is already at work, implying that it has already begun, that his coming has already begun in a sense. So that brings up a couple more questions, Paul. What is this mystery of lawlessness, and what is this or who is this restrainer? Well, first, as regards the mystery of lawlessness, mystery for Paul is a secret that has been revealed. We see it in Ephesians when Paul says, this secret has been revealed, namely that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are included in the new covenant. So mystery for Paul is a secret that is now being revealed. So it seems in this sense here that it's used, the mystery of lawlessness, that Paul is talking about this, what we talked about last time, this rising tide of lawlessness on the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that lawlessness will increase. So this rising tide of lawlessness on the earth, which culminates in lawlessness personified, which is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Being a mystery, it is being revealed. It's already at work, it says here. And will ultimately be revealed in the Antichrist when he is revealed. As at verse 8, it says he will be revealed. So it's a mystery that is being revealed. It's already at work. And it will culminate in the ultimate revelation of the lawless one, the Antichrist, as the man of lawlessness. 1 John 4.3 says something similar. John says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and interesting, this last phrase, and now it is already in the world. So even here in the first century, John is saying, the spirit of the Antichrist is coming, and it's already here. Well, that sounds like Paul, doesn't it? This lawlessness is coming, and it's already here. So then you can think, well, okay, how can it have begun, this, this, this process, it seems, or this, this, this tide of lawlessness, how can it have begun here in the first century, and here we are 2,000 years later, and the Antichrist hasn't come? Well, we've had many Antichrists, yes, but we haven't had the ultimate Antichrist, which precedes the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord hasn't come. We have to understand that for Paul and the apostles, since Christ's ascension, we have been living in the last days. So they speak of themselves as living in the last days here. The mystery of lawlessness has been at work all along, but it has been restrained all this time by this restrainer, only to be let loose by the restrainer being taken out of the way in verse 7, and the man of lawlessness let loose on the world. So that brings us to the question of, who or what is this restrainer? I say who or what because in verse 6 it says, you know what restrains. And then in verse 7 it says, he who now restrains. So we have, is it, a, is it a thing? Is it a person? Well, this is the rabbit hole I fell into. So I'm just going to give you a Cliff Notes version. There have been several theories throughout the centuries in the church because we are not told what it is of what this or who this restrainer is. One of the more common theories is that it is the Roman Empire. That's the what. 
and the who is the Roman emperor. Now, the reason they think this is because they see that Paul teaches in a number of places that civil government's job is to restrain evil or wickedness. We see this particularly in Romans 13. That government is to restrain wickedness. And so they say that the Roman Empire and its law and order is the means by which this lawlessness is restrained, and this is especially personified in the Roman emperor who, who maintains law and order. Now, as you can imagine, there are a couple of problems with this interpretation. Number one, the Roman Empire is long since gone. Number two, as we talked about last week, it seems that behind this, uh, this discussion here in this passage, there is the idea or the background of what is called the imperial cult. We talked about that last time. That is that the Caesar, the Roman Caesar, the Roman emperor, declares himself to be God and then requires people to worship him as high as or higher than all the other gods. And so if that's the background, which I think it is, then it seems odd for Paul to think of this Roman emperor as the restrainer of this man of lawlessness when this Roman emperor is more, more likely a type or a, 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 a pre-antichrist, setting himself up as God. So I don't think it fits the Roman emperor or the Roman empire. Number two, the second theory is that it is not the Roman Empire, but it is government in general, law and order. This again is based on Paul's teaching regarding civil government and also this lawlessness that is associated with the Antichrist. What is the opposite of lawlessness but lawfulness? So they think that government in general is God's means of restraining the Antichrist before his time. Well, a couple of problems with that. Number one, law and order doesn't really fit with the he in verse 7. How is law and order personified? Who is the he in verse 7? Also, how will government be taken out of the way? So will Antichrist preside over absolute anarchy in the world? I don't think that's what we see in the description of the Antichrist's reign in Revelation, where they require you to, to put the number on your hand, and everything's uh, carefully ordered in that sense, and they punish people who do not worship him. Uh, there, there's not, not a picture of anarchy, so it doesn't seem that government itself is taken out of the way. So I don't think that's it's the government in general. Number three, a third option uh, theory is that it is Michael or an angel. Now this is based on some rabbinical sources or old, or old teachings of Jewish rabbis and also on Michael fighting satanic powers in Daniel. So you have a prophecy of Daniel referring to the end times and Michael is fighting against satanic powers. This has been a popular theory in especially the early church but one of the problems with that is that there is no hint of this in anywhere else in Paul referring to an angel or Michael restraining uh, the, the man of lawlessness. Now, there are, there are other theories. But I'm just going to give you the fourth one because that's the one I lean towards. That the restrainer is God or more particularly the Holy Spirit. This is what I lean towards. Again, we're not clearly told, but let me give you just a few reasons why I think it's the Holy Spirit uh, and also some problems, if it is the Holy Spirit. Number one, it could be the Holy Spirit because if you notice in verse 12, sorry, verse 11, God will send them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. This sending a deluding influence could be seen as a replacement of the spirit of truth. You remember then when Jesus says, if I go away, God will send you my spirit or send you the spirit who will guide you into all truth. So it could be that this deluding influence is kind of a replacement for the spirit of truth. Now there's a kind of a spirit 
of lies, this deluding influence that is sent after the Spirit has been somehow taken out of the way. Number two, in verses 13, or sorry, in verse 13, Paul contrasts those under the deluding influence with those who are sanctified by the Spirit. This is verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So you can see the, the kind of distinction or contrast between those who are sanctified by the Spirit and those who are, in essence, uh, wickedified, if you can put it that way, by this deluding influence. You can see maybe the kind of the contrast between sanctification and lawlessness. So I think there's a couple of textual reasons that you could say that lend themselves toward the Holy Spirit. But then I think if you bring in 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 22, and verse 27, you see John contrast uh, uh, the Antichrist or the spirits or the Antichrist that have gone into the world and what he calls the anointing. And then later on in the chapter, you see that the anointing is the Holy Spirit. Then in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, you see the Spirit of God contrasted with the Spirit of the Antichrist. And then finally, John 16, 8 through 9, you see that the Spirit, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it may be that the Spirit's conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment is the very thing that is restraining the Antichrist. So, what are there, are there problems with the view that it's the Holy Spirit who is restraining Yes, I think so. The biggest one is, if it is the Holy Spirit, why does Paul not mention his name? Why would Paul not say, the Spirit is restraining him now? It's odd. Paul is not like that. He usually he names the name of the Spirit. He names the name of Christ. He names the name of the Father. So it seems odd that Paul would not mention the Spirit here in this context. Secondly, how will the Spirit be taken out of the way? Verse 7. <laughs> There's different theories on that. Uh, dispensational pre pre tribulational people would say that the spirit is removed from the earth. I wouldn't go that far. I would say that his restraining influence is turned off, as it will, and the the antichrist makes his appearance. So we're not told who the restrainer is, and I think we have to be careful about going down that rabbit hole. You may disagree with me on whether or not it's the Holy Spirit. That's fine. We're not told explicitly who it is. Whoever or whatever the restrainer is, the antichrist will be revealed in his time will deceive many, <coughs> excuse me, and will be defeated. So his time is, 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 will happen when the restrainer is removed. Then God will allow him to act in his, um, according to his sovereign will. So our second question, what will the coming of the Antichrist be like? What will accompany it? Well, as we've seen, lawlessness is increased and he becomes the man of lawlessness, culminates in him. It is accompanied, verse 9, with signs and wonders that are false, that are counterfeit signs and wonders. As we mentioned last week, the Antichrist will be, as it were, a false Christ. He will bring signs and wonders, as Jesus did. He will have his own coming, in verse 9, at Perusia, as Jesus would. So it's, it's to mock Christ and set himself up as an Antichrist, not only opposed to Christ, but as an alternate to Christ. Verse 10, all, he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. <clears throat> we talked about how there's, I think there's a correlation with Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. This deception of wickedness, it's the, the foolishness of sin, in other words. <clears throat> Romans 1, 
For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So this rising tide of lawlessness is accompanied by this rising tide of foolishness, that their speculation becomes foolish, their hearts become foolish. And as we talked about last time, I think we're seeing that. It's amazing some of the things that we're, that we're debating in the news and in culture, some of these foundational biological principles and, and established truths, we're questioning them. You see the foolishness going further and further and further into non-binary and all these things, uh, people marrying inanimate objects and all kinds of craziness. And I think it's because it's this foolishness that God has given them over to. And finally, this deluding influence that God sends. Verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. You may be like me. You read that. What? God sends a deluding influence? Isn't Satan the liar? So God is sending like a kind of a lying spirit, as it were. And literally, it says in the Greek, it is a work of error. God will send a work of error or an activity of error. What, he, what it means is that he's going to send a, a, a spirit of error so that people fall into error. God? That's not the God I know. God doesn't do that. There's several things we need to realize if we think about this hard saying. First, we must understand that this is an act of judgment by God which brings further judgment. This is very care- we have to be very careful here. God is not saying, here are these perfect unspotted people that I'm going to send this, this deluding influence which will cause them to sin and then boom, I'm going to judge them. That would not be a fair God. That would not be a good God. No, you see how verse 11 begins. For this reason, they have been deceived in wickedness, but also they have not received the love of the truth so as to be saved. They have rejected the truth. They have, been, they have embraced lies. They have followed the Antichrist. And so God, in judging them for that, sends upon them an, a, a deluding influence which essentially doubles their judgment. God, in this act of judgment, brings further judgment. You say, Josh, that still makes me uncomfortable. How can God not be held responsible for causing their sin? Well, I think what we see here is what Paul, again, Romans 1, I think there's a correlation here in this passage in Romans 1. If we look at Romans 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, you'll notice this phrase, and I think this is what God is doing here in in 2 Thessalonians. Romans 1, 24 says, after describing them as worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and 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 four-footed animals and crawling creatures, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's verse 24. Then verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Then verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What is God doing when he's sending that deluding influence? He's giving them over. You desire to run in foolishness. 
Do you desire to run in wickedness? Okay. Go ahead. No more restraint. No more common grace. I'm removing my influence for good, and I'm going to give you over to your depraved mind. And we see this in verse 12 in 2 Thessalonians. He does this in order that they may all be judged. So that's the first thing. We must understand that this is an act of judgment by God, which brings further judgment. This is an act of judgment by God for men and their sin, which brings further judgment for their sin. Second, we must see that this is something that God has always done. This is nothing new. You remember Pharaoh's hardened heart? He essentially gave Pharaoh over to his hardened heart. He tells Moses, I will harden his heart. And then it says that Moses hardened his heart. So you had to, how do you put those two together? God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it says clearly, even before Moses talks to Pharaoh. Then it says that Moses hardened his heart. How do you put those together? I think that's how you do it. God hardens his heart by removing his restraining influence for good. And he gives Pharaoh over to his depraved heart. So God hardens it. And Pharaoh hardens it. Another example is we see Ahab. God says, who will entice Ahab to go up against Ramoth Gilead and be killed there? And he ends up seeing, a spirit comes up to God and says, I will do it. And God says, how will you do it? I will go and put a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. So God says, do it. So this guy, this spirit goes and puts this lying spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets. And Ahab hears, oh, go up, you will win, you will win. All these prophets are saying, you will win. And so Jehoshaphat, who's there, says, can we hear from a prophet of the Lord? So Ahab said, okay, bring him over here. And at first he says, yes, go up, you will win. And I guess he said it sarcastically. Because Ahab is like, will you tell me really what you think, essentially? And the guy says, I saw God seated. And he said, who will entice Ahab? Essentially, God has sent a lying spirit, and you will go up and die. And so Ahab ignores him, goes to battle, and dies. I think we see there that God giving Ahab over to his selfishness, to his, to his uh, pride, and because he, he knows the truth, he hears the truth even of this deceiving spirit, but, he, but he's, he's hardened, and he hardens himself, and he goes into battle, and it ends up being a judgment on Ahab. So this is something that God has always done, judging people by bringing further judgment, by, by bringing a, a judgment on them which causes further sin, which brings further judgment. Third, we must remember that God cannot and will not lie. He merely removes his restraints on sinful, wicked hearts, and they go from bad to worse, from error to error. We see this same word, diluting, in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. In the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the women and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This diluting here is the same word in the Greek as the word translated here in Romans 1, error. So God removes this restraint and allows this, these, these wicked hearts to go from error to error, to be, to, to be given over to, these, to their base instincts, their base desires, and then they go from bad to worse. They go from error to error. Fourth, as we think about this, God sending a deluding influence, do not forget to consider or contemplate the dreadful state this is. 
Can you imagine the dreadful state this is? That God in his, in his holiness looks down on the wicked man and in his response sends further judgment by giving them a diluting influence so that they sinned greater, incurring further judgment on themselves. The God of heaven not only is against you, but piling on reasons for his greater and greater wrath against you. Can you imagine anything more terrifying? Not only is my face set against you, but I am adding reasons to destroy you. And this from the only holy almighty God. What a terrifying prospect. That's why we cannot miss the sweet words that immediately precede this dreadful sentence. You see there in verse 11, God will send a deluding influence upon them. Look at those sweet words right before it in verse 10. These people who receive the deluding influence, they do so because they did not receive the love of the truth, and here's that sweet phrase, so as to be saved. Hopefully as you read this, and you see this impending doom and judgment, and you see your lawlessness of yourself, and you see your, your, your wickedness, and your de- being deceived, and you're running in sin from error to error, and you see this this. this this hammer coming down on you, you come across this phrase, so as to be saved, you see it as a glimmer of hope. It's possible to be saved? There's an escape? Yes, there is. You see, there are two categories of people mentioned in verses 10 through 12. Those who are deceived, those who are deluded, those who are condemned, those are all the same. They're condemned, they're deceived, they're deluded, and they end up perishing and being condemned judged. And then the second category, those who are saved. So what's the difference, Josh? How can I be among the saved? How can I be not among the ones that God sends this deluding influence and they just go from bad to worse? They split hell wide open, flying in there. Those who are saved, this is the difference. Those who are saved, in verse 10, received the love of the truth. And we see in verse 12 that these same people believe the truth. They believe the truth. And in verse 10, they receive the love of the truth. So what does it mean to receive the love of the truth? Well, receive here in the Greek means to welcome. So they welcomed. They embraced the love of the truth. Okay, what's the truth here, Josh? Well, for Paul, throughout his writings, the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he goes on to celebrate in in verses 13 through 14. You see there in verse 14, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it there in verse 13, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. But we've seen Paul define it even more clearly in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So defined here in 1 Thessalonians 5, the truth is Christ dying for us, so that we could live with him. If we go back another page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul has defined the truth as... 
waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Notice in both places that the truth, this, this, um, this, this thing that they love, is Jesus saving them, giving them salvation. We see that word there in our passage, those who are saved, so as to be saved, saving them from this wrath to come. So this description of the man of lawlessness is, is a part of God's wrath landing on unrepentant sinners. So Paul says that the, the truth that you are to believe, the truth are you to our love, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him, which saves you from that wrath to come. But notice Paul speaks of not only believing, but loving the truth. This is a crucial, crucial distinction. It is not just a knowledge of the truth. It is not just believing in the facts of the case. Yes, I know there's a Jesus, and I know he died on the cross. Next subject. I know Jesus, now can we get on with other things? No. You love him. You know the truth, and you love him. In fact, real faith or belief in the truth will always be accompanied by a love for it. That is something that is crystal clear in Scripture, and unfortunately, so many churches miss that. They, they teach the gospel, they teach repentance and faith, they teach becoming a Christian as just kind of mentally assenting to something. Yeah, I agree with that, now I'm a Christian. No, you agree with it, yes, but you heartily embrace it in love. You say, yes, this is good. You don't just say, yep, there's that. You say, yes, thank you, everything is this, this is everything, this is my hope, this is my joy. Jesus Christ, now and always. That's love of the truth. We can see this even in our passage. Look at what the inverse is in verse 12. In order, these are the ones who are sent the deluding influence, who are judged. In order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but instead took pleasure in wickedness. So that's the inverse. Instead of loving the truth, they loved wickedness. That word took pleasure, you could say uh, approved. Instead of approving of the truth, they approved of wickedness. You see that that's, what the, that's the inverse. So then the person who is saved does not approve of wickedness, but approves and loves the truth and eschews or, or abstains and abhors wickedness. They take pleasure in the truth. This lover of the truth is further described in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This is what Peter says. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ there, which we have in 2 Thessalonians verse 8. Notice what he says next. And though you have not seen him, that is Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So this descriptor of the one who loves the truth, love, has not seen him yet, not seen him with his eyes, not seen his revelation, his coming in the clouds, but still loves him. And you do not see him now, but you believe in him. And this crucial here at the end, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. That's a description of someone who loves Jesus, 
loves the truth. They see him by faith, in essence, and say, yes, with joy I take you as my beloved. With joy I embrace you as my Christ. And so let me turn it to you, friend. Have you welcomed with open arms not only the truth, but a love for the truth? You see, your love shows your heart. What you love shows your heart. That's where your treasure is. Is your heart aimed full bore at Jesus Christ? Or is it just a passing acquaintance, a passing knowledge? Yeah, Jesus is over there. He seems cool. There's some people, I'm not crazy about it. There's, there's, you know, Jesus people who are always going to church, blah, blah, blah. But he seems cool enough. No. True faith in Christ embraces him as your only hope of salvation, as your greatest treasure. Paul says, I consider everything as rubbish. I consider everything as garbage, Paul says. He says everything compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's a Christian. Don't fall into that trap of being like, oh, that Paul was like a super Christian. What a weirdo. That, he's describing a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're going to live your life perfectly and that every moment of every day you're going to consider everything as rubbish, but it just means that the, the disposition of your heart, the aim of your heart is at the surpassing greatness and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, and you say, yes, it's mine. Nothing better. Your love for the truth is not determined by how much you cry at the mention of his name. Whether you get emotional during songs about him, or whether you swoon when you read of him. See, we have to be careful when we talk about love. We often think of what the world describes as love, which is kind of Hallmark film kind of uh, Valentine's Day and, and puppy dog love infatuation. That is not founded, grounded, eternal love. True love, what you love, is determined by what moves you. We talked about that before. If you say you love someone, you will act like it. Oh, I love you, but I treat you like an enemy. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, I love you, but I treat you like I hate you all the time. No. If you love the person, you will show, you will act in love. And so what you act in love towards shows what your idol is. Oftentimes, by our default, is ourselves. We show by our actions that we have placed ourselves on our throne, and we have embraced ourselves. But at the same time, this is not to set aside emotion. We need to be careful here that we don't just say uh, that, that love for Christ is this, this cold-hearted, uh, emotionless um, handshake of Jesus so you make it a business arrangement. No, it's, it's a hearty embrace. That's why Peter says it's joy inexpressible and full of glory. You, you heartily embrace Jesus as, as the love of your life. Our hearts will be warmed and moved toward the objects of our affection. We, as we see their loveliness, so as we, as we see the loveliness of an object of affection, of object of love, our, our love is grown and, and our hearts are warmed and we move in love toward them and we feel love toward them and we embrace them, so also with Christ. In fact, if I were to define love for the truth, I would say love for the truth is love for Christ and his gospel 
and that is an affectionate embrace of Christ which results in loving obedience to him. You see the two elements I put in there? Love for Christ and his gospel, which is the truth, is an affectionate, there's that emotional, there's that, there's that, there's that joy of wrapping your arms around him, that affectionate love and desire for him, embrace of him, which results in loving obedience to him. So there's still that loving obedience, but there's that movement. There's that obedience, that, that, that embracing of him which is shown by your movement toward him in obedience. So try yourself by this passage. Do you love him or do you love wickedness? Do you love him or do you love wickedness? How important are these questions? There is no greater questions. There's no questions of more importance than this. Do you love him or do you love your wickedness? Why? See what the end of the Antichrist is and that of his followers. If you love wickedness, if you do not love the truth but love wickedness, you will fly into deception and run after the Antichrist and meet his same end. Verse 8, the Lord comes and slays him with the breath of his mouth. Paul seems to be alluding to Isaiah 11 verse 4, which says, talking of Jesus, the righteous branch, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Revelation 19 verses 15 and 20 and 21 capture the end of the Antichrist. Jesus comes on a white horse, and it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Then in verses 20 and 21, And the beast, that is the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. When we read in verse 9 of, of our passage that this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, will come with the activity, with the, with the energy of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders. Wow, he's going to be powerful. But we just read in verse 8, of the surpassing power, the awesome power of our God, that Jesus comes and just with a, he's gone. The power of our Savior. Which side are you on? Are you going to be the one that's following the Antichrist to your doom? Are you going to be the one following the Antichrist to the sword coming out of the mouth of the Savior to strike you down? Or are you going to be the one that follows Jesus, stands behind him and sees him strike down all his enemies, and you respond with glory and praise and honor to the one who saved you, but, by, but except for his grace, you would be over there opposing him. But as he has shown grace to you, stand with him. You say, glory, glory. Those who follow the Antichrist in verse 10 are the ones who perish and then in verse 12, they're the ones who are judged. That word in the Greek is condemned or damned. They perish, they are judged, they are condemned. 
we have seen that God begins to judge them by turning them over to their sin, piling up wrath for the day of judgment. We get the same kind of language again in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So, would you have the kindness and patience of God? Or would you have the wrath of God for on yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God? He will show himself righteous by committing you to hell. But... God's kindness and patience is on display here today in our passage, offering you his gracious hand in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. There in verse 10, you can be saved by receiving a love of the truth. Open up your heart and mind to Jesus Christ. Embrace him in love as your only hope of salvation. Embrace him by faith, trusting in his work on the cross on your behalf, that he has paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. And by embracing that and saying, there is my Savior, there is my treasure, you can be saved, you will be saved, you are saved. And therefore you will escape the end that the Antichrist suffers. Apart from Christ, you are destined for that but in Christ, you are destined for salvation. We see Paul wonderfully describe those, he contrasts those who are in Christ with those who are in essence, in essence, the Antichrist, starting in verse 13, reading through the end of the chapter, we see this glorious picture of God's grace to us. So he's offering you this gracious hand saying, take hold of my son, take him by faith, and you will be sanctified by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Paul says, verse 13 and following, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us, and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Your only hope of salvation, the salvation described in verse 13 and verse 10, is the grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ. Meaning, you cannot earn it. You cannot be good enough. You cannot just avoid being deceived enough. You can't do enough uh, good works and, 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 and Christian things and go to church and read your Bible and all these things to, to become a Christian. The only hope you have is to grab a hold of Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers you in him by faith and say, this is my salvation. His death for my death. His life for my life. If I live, it's only because he lives. And thereby you can be saved. If this is you, if you find yourself loving, taking pleasure in wickedness and not in the truth, and you are concerned of your eternal state, that the Antichrist's end is your end, come talk to me after the service. 
Let me help you to see the glories of Jesus Christ, who he is for lost and broken sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. We read passages like this and we are, again, surprised, reminded of the breadth of your sovereignty. We so often restrain it. We so often narrow it. We so often put limits on your sovereignty so that it fits our view, our whims, but your sovereignty goes over all the earth, every man's heart. It goes all the, over all the universe. It goes into history and the future. It goes everywhere. There's nothing outside of your control, and so we shudder at the judgment that rests on those who stand against you, who oppose you, who stand with the Antichrist. And Father, we know that is all of us. Apart from your grace, we all march in opposition to your rule. We, we exalt ourselves or we exalt people who exalt us. It's only by your gracious work, the work of, the, of your Holy Spirit and breaking our hearts for our sin, giving us a new heart to see and hear and believe your word, to hear and see and believe Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners and to run to him and embrace him. Father, if there's somebody here who has not embraced Christ, loved him, but instead takes pleasure in wickedness, let them see their end is dreadful. Not only will they be deceived by the Antichrist, but God will send a deluding error on them so that they go further and further into debauchery and wickedness. And they are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. Let them see, Father, that this same dreadful God who judges sinners justly also offers peace with himself by grace, through faith, in his Son, offered as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Father, let them see that. Oh, let them see that. Break them down. Put them on their knees. Convict them of their sin. Show them what faith is. Give them faith and repentance. And the glory that is in him. Let us see your glory in saving sinners, Father. And in building up believers to wait, to trust, and to long for the, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.